Good morning, Harvest. As uh, Nathan said, letter of Jude is where we are. Started that last week. And uh, let me start with a, a quote from one of my, uh, one of my faves, uh, G.K. Chesterton. He said, in truth, uh, there are only two kinds of people. Those who accept a set of beliefs and know it, and those that accept a set of beliefs and don't know it. We've been talking about deconstruction, and a person may deconstruct their Christian faith all the way to atheism in some cases, as we heard last week, but in doing so, they simply embrace a new set of beliefs. It's usually a set of beliefs that's of their own uh, design, and very often it's a set of beliefs that frees them to live as they please. Jude's short letter here is continuing, and he offers in the next three verses uh, three well-established examples of those who had, in, ex- in essence, and th- these would have been examples that were known uh, to his readers, three examples of those who had, in essence, deconstructed their faith, if we could put it that way, uh, preferring a set of beliefs of their own and This is Jude's warning, resulting in devastating, destructive consequences for each of the groups. And Jude's plea here, his point in including these three examples, this comes as a warning passage to us here today, but Jude's plea is for us as Christians to contend for the faith. We saw that in verse 3 last week. That's the overarching theme of this book. To contend for the faith, to fight for what we believe in concerning Jesus Christ and his gospel and the application of that to our lives, not just as some concept that we would give assent to, intellectual assent to, but as something that genuinely is transforming our lives. Now, this does not mean that we just accept it and everything is perfect for us. When we come to Jesus Christ, we... We bring our questions, we bring our doubts, we subject them to the scrutiny of the Scriptures, we test what we've been taught, we lay it all bare, we tear down, if necessary, what is useless, and we reconstruct. But in doing so, we certainly do not abandon the faith. And as a step in the process, Jude says we need to be reminded of some things, Again, these act as warnings to us, and so I need to remind myself of those who have deconstructed, done what they pleased, and have been lost. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage. Again, three short verses. If you have your Bibles open, follow along as I read uh, Jude um, verses 5 through 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example 
by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. We'll make this encouraging along the way, I promise. (laughs) To contend for the, you you should see next week's passage, it's even harder. (laughs) To contend for the faith, this is what we're going to look at. To, To contend for the faith means reminding myself that first of all, unbelief destroys Am I a believer? This is the question that Jude wants his readers to ask themselves and to be confident of. Am I even a believer? Because unbelief destroys. That's the point of the first example. In fact, the first example of three is of Israel in the wilderness. And so this is the story of Israel. They were in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They go through the Exodus. They're in the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land. This is the context of this example. Verse five, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, he's assuming prior knowledge on their part of all these things that he's going to share, either because this is a Jewish audience. Remember last week we said we're not exactly sure who he wrote the letter to. This could be a Jewish audience which would have been well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures and known these stories as soon as he mentioned them, or this is prior knowledge and or this is prior knowledge they received when the gospel was explained to them, that they've come to know these things if it was more of a Gentile audience. So I want to remind you, though you once fully knew it, that uh, these things, what I'm going to explain to you about the gospel, these things are a reminder, these are critical in this battle for the faith. So he reminds them, verse 5 continues, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, that's a curious statement, isn't it? Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. What a strong affirmation of his deity, of his pre-existence. He is God. It was Jesus who was at the head of the pack, leading them out of Egypt in the Old Testament. Fully God, fully man. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. We see the kindness of God on display, a picture. We're looking for little encouragements in this In this warning passage, this is it. This is God saving his people, the saving grace of God, bringing his people out of slavery into the promised land. But afterward, notice, destroyed those who did not believe. If you recall this story, this is from Numbers 13 and 14. This is the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. When they believed the report, they sent the 12 spies into the land. They were like, we're, we're getting ready to go in. Let's send the spies in just to take a look around and see what's going on. The 12 spies go in. How many came back with a good report? What were their names? Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. 10 of them come back. We can't take the land. There's giants in the land. Walled cities. It's too overwhelming. There's no way we can take the land. And the people, rather than believing Joshua and Caleb and being filled with faith, they were filled with unbelief and listened to the the, the 10 and refused to enter into the land. And God judged them. In that the whole generation, that whole unbelieving generation had to pass away in the wilderness without ever having entered the land. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, the Lord indicates that while the example referred to not getting into the land in a physical sense, that there were also eternal consequences at play here. That this this was about their hearts not being aligned with the heart of God. 
In fact, in Hebrews 3.10, it says, they always go astray in their hearts. So this betrayed the fact that they were not actually saved. They would not enter into the eternal rest. And not believing and not entering into that physical land was a picture of what was going on in their hearts. And they were never, in fact, bound for heaven. And an important side note here, do you like the side notes when I give you these? I like the side notes. Lots of side notes in Jude, because it's a weird book. But an important side note here is that, that all, of, all of ethnic Israel, all of those who were physically Jews, escaped Egypt and went out into the wilderness. But not all ethnic Jews actually believed in their hearts. You can be, to, to use the Old Testament, Old Testament measure of this, you, you can be circumcised outwardly, have the sign and seal of the covenant, but not be circumcised in heart. Paul wrote it this way, and he, he processed some of this in the book of Romans. And he said this in Romans 2.29, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, so even in the Old Testament, even prior to the coming of Jesus and the incarnation and his death on the cross, his resurrection, prior to all of that, a believer was still saved in the exact same way, by faith. A matter of the heart, not of outward religion, not outward compliance, but, but inward reality. And the way that we might say it is something like this, religion doesn't save, God does, and it's a matter of personal faith and never works. You have to believe, and then that belief results in life change, uh, not merely a single decision, but an ongoing walk with Christ. Tom Schreiner says it this way, Israel's apostasy or unbelief stands as a warning to all, uh, to all those who think that an initial commitment secures their future destiny without ongoing obedience. It's not enough to be a Jew. Jews were not automatically saved because they were born into a Jewish home or because they had the rite of circumcision performed on them or because they went to temple or because they observed the feast days and brought the sacrifices and went to synagogue. That's not the thing that got them saved. They had to believe in Yahweh. They had to believe in his promise of a Messiah. They had to believe the exact same thing that you and I have to believe. Only they just didn't know his name was Jesus. For the Christian, and I, I love this from Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, we are not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become a Christian. Rather, we're told because you're a Christian, live like this. And so how do we avoid being among those? Because this is what Jude's pressing on our hearts right now. How do we avoid being among those who failed to believe and face destruction? I mean, ask yourself, firstly, do I genuinely believe this? 
that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, that he took on human flesh, faced temptation just like you and I, lived a human life, but never gave into that temptation, never sinned, and thus was presented as the perfect sacrifice, giving his life on the cross and being resurrected from the dead on the third day so that you and I could have life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? Do you believe that he's going to return in his glory? Do I believe? And second, is that belief, that transforming belief in Jesus Christ, is that changing me? Is it evident in my life that I believe that? Now, this belief, by the way, again, this is a series about deconstructing and reconstructing our faith to make it stronger, to get rid of the things that are hindering our genuine faith. So this belief, I can say I believe in Jesus Christ, genuinely give my life to him, my heart being aligned with him, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle at times. Where did we come up with the idea that, that, that receiving Jesus Christ was going to make the path smooth, that I was going to know everything instantly? Some of us are saved and still dumb as posts. <laughs> Don't look around, that's rude. <laughs> Very rude. Does not mean you won't struggle at times. It does, does not mean you won't have a doubt or two along the way. Doesn't mean that every question has an answer. Doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. Those questioning their own faith need only look to the Bible itself to see how many strugglers there were. The Bible's filled with strugglers. Think about it. Noah's post-flood indiscretion, he had seen the miracles of God performed right in front of him, something so spectacular, it encompassed the entire world. And he was a complete chump afterwards. Jacob's propensity to lie, is there one good thing said about this man in the scripture? And he's a patriarch. David's blatant sin, he's the king of Israel, chosen by God, anointed by God to be the king of Israel. Victory after victory, this man experienced. And he took another man's wife and had him murdered. Solomon's insatiable appetite for pleasure, Jonah's obstinance before God, Peter's up and down devotion, Martha's mixed up priorities, Thomas's doubts and skepticism. The Bible's full of people who loved Jesus and struggled with it. The thing about every one of them is they kept wrestling. They kept struggling, even in the midst of how difficult they often made it on themselves. They never gave up their faith. They kept contending for it in their own hearts. So are you a believer? I hope you are, because unbelief destroys. That much is guaranteed. And even when it's a battle, keep striving, keep believing, dig in deeper. Here's the second one. I must remind myself also that pride imprisons. 
Pride imprisons, and, and I have to ask myself the question. These are all self-reflections. Am I humble? Pride is, by the way, pride is the problem of all problems. And, and, and when we're thinking about this, let's just step back for a moment, and let's just all agree in this very moment that none of us would ever really want to step into the ring with God. You know what I'm talking about, right? None of us want to step into the ring with God and, and fight with God. That just seems like a bad idea. And in fact, in 1 Peter 5, 5, the apostle says, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Why would I ever want to step into the ring knowing my own pride, knowing my arrogance, knowing how self-centered I can be? Why would I ever want to step into the ring knowing God opposes me? I'm going to lose that fight. God opposes the proud, but notice, gives grace to the humble. And of course, it isn't just that God opposes the proud, but it really is that the proud oppose God by default. I saw an infographic on red pen logic on Instagram, and there's some links in your notes. I put some additional resources there, so if you're at hbc.info, looking at the notes there, we're just gonna keep building a, a resource list there uh, through the series. But anyways, the links are there for red pen logic on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Anyways, this guy, uh, what he does is he takes like excerpts from other pages, often people who have deconstructed their faith or are uh, asking um, intellectual questions or making statements on atheism or something like that, and then he'll red pen them. He'll, he'll, he'll show you where the errors are and bring corrections based on the scriptures. So that's red pen logic. It's a fun follow. But he made this, this point, and this is in the voice. You have to hear this in the voice of someone who has deconstructed their faith. This is, what, this is what was on, on the infographic. When others tell me that the reason I left the church was simply because I, I really didn't know the one true God, the truth is I did. The problem was that in order for me to keep believing in him, I had to keep abandoning myself. So instead, I chose me for the first time. I want to applaud this person's honesty because at least... She's being honest. But this is, this is, in fact, the technical word for this is mumbo jumbo. Okay, this is, this is, sorry, I, self-esteem mumbo jumbo. I missed some, some of that. Um, or, or it's pride. It's just pride. It's putting me in the middle of the story. And, and the red pen logic guy commented on this and said, for many people, deconstruction isn't about submitting to God. It's about choosing to be your own God. See, now we're really getting to it. That's what this is really all about. I don't want anyone else. I don't want the world. I don't want some religious system. I don't want some pastor. I don't want some old dusty book dictating how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to choose that. So Jude says, all of that, all of that is the setup for the second example. Here's what he says in verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, these are legit messengers of God, angelic beings, 
created by God, given authority, given a sphere of influence and responsibility, but who, like their ringleader, Satan, left their proper dwelling. They stepped outside of the sphere of responsibility and authority that God had given to them. Now, are you curious about this? Anytime angels are mentioned in the Bible, does you, do you get a little peaked in your... Yeah? Are you like me? It's like angels, cool. How many people are in the angels, cool category, right? You want to know all about it. And this is part of the reason why Jude's a little weird. Um, not Jude personally, I don't know him, but the book. Um, many, many, but not all commentators, many, but not all commentators. Did everybody hear me? Many, but not all commentators see this as a reference to Genesis 6, 1 to 4. And when you're talking about weird passages in the scripture, Genesis 6, 1 to 4 is right up there, top of the list, top three for sure. Maybe, maybe top of the, top of the uh, heap. So Genesis 6, 1 to 4 is, in, in, in the view of many commentators, is uh, a picture of fallen angels. Um, and, and Jude is quite evidently here not, he's referencing what he's saying to Genesis 6, 1 to 4, but he's drawing on Jewish tradition that is not part of the Old Testament, what we call extra-biblical sources. So he's pulling from multiple other sources, four or five different sources that talk about all of this outside of the Bible. And in doing so, here's what he's saying. Ready for this? You don't even know if you are. See, these prideful angels assumed human form as men, the assumption here being that when an angel assumes a human form, that angel assumes all the functions of a human. Everybody still with me? Had sex with women who they thought were super attractive and birthed human angelic hybrids. Everybody still with me? Just watching the doors right now, see what's going on. <laughs> and as a result of that, this abomination, these fallen angels having sex with women, birthing these hybrids, this triggered the Noahic flood. Now, um, this, as a side note, how many people like side notes? <laughs> as a side note, for many scholars, when they hear this story, they go, oh, that's, that's the source for the mythologies and all these other cultures, all these other thought systems, how the gods had sex with humans and produced heroes, produced these hybrids. So this is where that story comes from for many scholars. Well, the effect is God is now keeping them midway through verse 6, back to the scriptures here, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, sifting through all the weirdness of that to say that Jude's point is that pride imprisons. That's his point. Whatever the details are about these angels, pride imprisons. And am I humble? Because that's the warning I want to take off of this. You know, there are those, when we start to think about pride, it's a, it's a big topic today in our culture. There are those who raise a flag publicly declaring their pride. And as Christians, we shake our heads when we see that. We shake our heads at the flagrancy, the flagrancy of that rebellion against God, don't we? They're trumpeting pride. 
even some who would call themselves progressive Christians, fly the flag, declare the word in this flagrant rebellion against God. But I'm, I'm much less concerned with that obvious affront to God that's happening outside of the walls of this church. I am much less concerned about that and far more concerned as Jude is, as we saw last week, with what's happening inside the church. Where pride is so much more subtle, often acceptable, but no less destructive in our lives as it is in the lives of those who are flying the flag. In fact, it's pride to think anything other than that. I'm so glad we're not proud like them. I'm so proud of my humility. He had a fabulous book on humility, a very short read. Andrew Murray said this. The book is called Humility, The Journey Toward Holiness. He said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. And that's the nature of this warning to the church. Jude wants his readers to see again the way pride keeps them from believing the gospel. You can't come to the cross you can't grasp what the Savior has done in giving his life, shedding his blood. You can't believe in the resurrection from the dead. You can't have hope for his return and yet believe that you brought anything to the table in terms of your own salvation. To, to do so is, to use Jude's words here, is, is to not stay within your own position. God has put us in a certain place as human beings. And to believe that you bring anything to your salvation at all is to step outside of that sphere that God has put us in. And to allow pride to well up inside of ourselves. In this, in this narrative about God and humanity, let's get the characters straight. In this narrative about God and humanity, he is the savior and you are the sinner. That's it. Murray again said this, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. Am I going to pridefully choose me or humbly choose him? Will I be on the throne as my own God or will God be enthroned on my heart? That's really the question we're asking here. In the words of Jesus himself, if anyone would come after me, let him, anybody follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. Pride imprisons. And humility frees us from the bondage of sin and death. Am I humble? Finally, this warning. Immorality condemns. Am I pursuing holiness? 
Oh, now we get into Sodom and Gomorrah. Super encouraging. Verse 7. He's speaking. It's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah and not just those two cities, but the surrounding cities of the plain, five cities in all that faced the judgment of God because they, like the fallen angels, they, like the false teachers that Jude is writing this letter about that we looked at last week, these are the ones that are at the center of what Jude is trying to say to them, what he's writing about. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged Verse 7 says, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. You know, the story here, the, these, there's Lot and his family are living there. They're the only faithful ones. Two angelic messengers come. The cities are going to be wiped out. And there's a whole ordeal with the men of the city coming and wanting the angels to be brought out so that they could have sex with them. In a weird twist, by the way, in the second example, we had angels wanting to have sex with women. And in the third example, we have uh, men wanting to now have sex with angels. So Sodom and Gomorrah became known for a certain kind of sexual sin. And that was almost without a doubt a part of the condemnation here. But the first word actually points to a broader understanding of sexual immorality. It is sexual immorality of all kinds, in fact. The original language word here in, in uh, Jude is uh, ekporneo. You can see the word porn in the middle of that. Uh, the lexicon defines it this way, it's to engage in sexual immorality of any kind, often but not always with the implication of prostitution. It means to engage in illicit sex, to commit a fornication, which broadly speaking is any sex outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. When you look at the word ekporneo, uh, for those who know, uh, the ek is intensive. It's a uh, prefixed preposition attached to the front of the word, and it makes it intensive. It implies um, an action without reserve. This isn't just sexual immorality. It's, it's unbridled, rampant sexual immorality. The unnatural desire that he mentions here refers literally to other flesh, not the natural heterosexual relationship, but homosexual, how we would normally think of the word Sodom, the way that that has come to be used in our culture. The translators New Testament put it this way, they indulged in unrestricted and unnatural sexual vice of all kinds. Now Christians, let's be careful about fixing on one kind of sexual immorality when any kind of unrepentant sin, sexual sin can result in condemnation. I mean, this is, this is a flashpoint in our culture, isn't it? We start talking about these things. This is a flashpoint in our culture. And in fact, Christians' views on matters of sexuality are a big reason why many have deconstructed their faith. And sometimes it's not what we believe, but it's the tonality with which we have delivered what we believe. It's the attitude behind it. 
So Christians, let's be careful about fixating on one kind of sexual immorality when any kind of unrepentant sexual sin can result in condemnation. That's Jude's point here. I mean, there's nothing like it. Christians, there's nothing like it. Centering out gays when you're committing adultery with a person of the opposite sex, good for you. You're a heterosexual unrepentant sinner. How is that better? You didn't miss the sarcasm, I hope. I mean, this is a call to holy living, a big part of which is in the sexual realm and refers to far more things than just the big issue in the culture around us. And the obje- I can hear the objection right now as we're thinking about this. If we're going to make this so broad and covering all matters of sexuality, we live in this hyper-sexualized culture today. And there are many people, even those who would profess faith in Christ, who are going, you know, that's just not a realistic way to live today. You can't be laying that kind of morality on anyone. And first of all, we're not laying our morality on the culture around us. We're just demanding it inside the walls. And there are Christians who are saying, no, that's what I'm talking about. You can't even lay that on Christians. I mean, to live sexually pure today, when we live in a society that's so sexually obsessed, but let's step back. Let's let's remember the context into which Jude is writing. The first century Roman Empire. You can't imagine, you and I can't imagine the radical nature of this gospel message in the context of the Roman world. I mean, Israel had clear sexual mores. They were following those. The New Testament was consistent with what was said in the Old. So it wasn't as difficult for a Jewish Christian, someone who had come to understand Jesus as their Messiah, to accept the moral uh, fabric of being a Christian because it was so in parallel with what they had been as Jews. But to take that outside of the Jewish sphere to the rest of the empire meant a drastic reordering of one's life for a Gentile, a Roman, a Greek. come to faith in Christ, and to have to now live like this. I read an article this week that kind of went through all the details of this, but especially men, if, we, if they were to convert and actually live for Christ, to tell a male Roman citizen that he could no longer satisfy his raging impulses with indiscriminate rape of anyone in a lower class, of sex with children and youth, of availing himself of temple prostitutes, that was beyond ridiculous in the culture. And yet they dared to continue to preach the gospel and call people to be holy. Now, we've talked enough about sex. All in favor? The sex thing wasn't the only thing that Sodom and Gomorrah were taken down for. The prophet Ezekiel said this, Behold, this this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. We just talked about that. Excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. 
See, the sin at Sodom went far deeper. Sure, sexual sin is immoral, we get that, but so is the neglect of those on the margins. Now we're probably hitting a little closer to home. The neglect of the vulnerable, especially when you're prosperous. See, it's a dangerous thing to be wealthy. And by the world's standards, most of us here are wealthy, by the way. It's a dangerous thing to be wealthy because it opens up a whole new category of immorality, a whole new category of temptation for us to sin, to give in to greed, to give in to selfishness. And the only antidote for this is, is belief in Jesus, being humble with God and pursuing holiness, which in this case means overflowing in generosity. And so these examples that Jude has given to us, all three of these, serve, he says in the latter part of verse 7, serve as an example. Paul said almost the exact same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, by the way. They serve as an example by warning, an example or a warning by undergoing, we see them undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And we should be going, like, I don't want that. I don't want to be destroyed by eternal fire. I want to live for Jesus. And so, so tying all of it together, all three of these examples, everything that Jude is trying to say to us, you may be an outright unbeliever, rejecting God honestly by saying, I don't believe in God, or simply, sure, I believe there's a God, but I want to live my own life. Or, here's the possibility and the warning we need to hear, you may be a functional unbeliever, making some sort of profession, I believe in God or I'm a Christian, but pridefully living as if you don't believe in him, selectively ignoring his precepts and his call to holiness. And either way, whether honestly or in this way where you're simply fooling yourself, either way you stand condemned. Many of you will know the name Lecrae. He wrote a book recently called I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. Just started reading it this week. Lecrae is a hip-hop artist, author, and teacher. He went through his own crisis, and he speaks of deconstruction in the book, deconstructing and reconstructing his faith. And he said this, sometimes we don't want God to be real because we want permission to sin without consequence. We want an intimate God on Sundays and an impersonal God who looks the other way for the rest of the week. And that's simply not an option. As Jude shows us, that's simply not an option without inviting condemnation. And God said to you and me through the Apostle Peter, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we want to be like Jesus. If you're going to contend for the faith, it has to start with genuine belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to wrestle down your pride. And you have to tenaciously pursue holiness in your life as the evidence of the genuineness of your faith. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, I am uh, again uh, grateful for the hard edge of your word. Father, it's difficult at times for us to uh, read passages like this, to hear uh, the heart and intent of this, and um, Father, to not come away changed. So we need your Holy Spirit, Father, to keep us from turning the other way toward more rebellion, toward rejecting these truths. And Father, to receive the implanted word today, to heed these warnings, to ask ourselves these questions. And Father, to find ourselves growing in our faith in Jesus Christ to even greater depths than we've experienced to date. Thank you, Father, for wrestling with us, for being kind and, and merciful and gracious toward us when we've struggled. Thank you for speaking to us and offering us your son. Thank you for your love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.